Hello and welcome to Culture Sex Relationships with me, Justin Hancock. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by my friend, uh, sex therapist, sex education star, uh, joining me from New York as well, which is very glamorous, uh, Cindy Darnell. <laughs> welcome to the podcast, Cindy. Hi, Justin. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to see you. It's been yeah, it's a number of uh, years. Oh, no, months, actually. I saw you last year when you were on my yeah, podcast. Yeah, but we it's been years since we saw each other uh, in person, isn't it? In um, person, yeah, yeah, which is going to change this year. I'm going to be coming to England oh. <clears throat> in August for the Pink Therapy Conference. Oh, great. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. I'll see you then. Awesome. Um, so, uh, Cindy has written a book which came out uh, last year, wasn't it, Cindy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sex when That's we don't right. feel, sex when you don't feel like it. Um, and I've read it, and it's absolutely great. It's one of the best resources I've read about um, how to enjoy sex more. Uh, and I say that as somebody who's written a book about how to enjoy sex more. So, uh, <laughs> so this uh. is really, really good. It's really, it's really rich. It's uh, full of um, analysis, but also it's really, it's full of resources. And I think that I'm going to keep kind of banging, I'm banging on about at the moment uh, to anyone who will listen, is the importance of that we have anything to do with sex and relationships education or advice or any kind of like uh, therapeutic or uh, kind of um any kind of any kind of intervention in this area needs to provide resources like we can know so much and there can be so much you know information and um ideas that are kind of we're bombarded with on social media but, but what we need are resources ways that we can put this into practice ways mm. that we can do ourselves ways that we can discover our sexual subjectivities uh ways that we can refine our bodies ways that we can be curious uh, about what might happen um, and how to connect with others, how to connect with partners, sex partners, loved ones. Um, and this book is absolutely full of tons of amazing, amazing advice. So many congratulations on writing a really excellent book, Cindy. Thank you. Thank you, Justin. It's great, actually, to get that feedback because, um, you know, as much as it's a book that I had worked on in various capacities for like for 10 years, I, I wasn't working on it constantly for 10 years, but I started writing it 10 years ago and then I would sort of add in bits and pull bits out and change bits as, as I went along. But what I did find with so many uh, books that are libido books uh generally about you know how to have hot sex and that kind of thing that it does tend to truncate our sexual experience down to sex must be uh mm-hmm. with genitals it's gonna involve some kind of penetration and that there's nothing wrong with that mm-hmm. but if you're the kind of person for whom that sex is okay that can be part of the menu but it doesn't have to be the entire meal mm-hmm. we need to start thinking about sex more with you know what I call a banquet approach and going we can have lots of little bits of it to actually make it more interesting and exciting and even though over the years that I've been doing this work with couples where one part of the couple will say, meh, you know, I just don't really feel like it anymore. Mm -hmm. They will often say, yes, the sex we're having is good or my partner is trying. Mm -hmm. So I will believe that. However, if your own motivations for having sex, whatever sex means to you, you get Mm -hmm. to interpret that word. 
if your own motivations are out of sync with what's actually happening between you and your partner, no matter how attentive your partner is, if you are also not paying attention, you're going to be left feeling, I'm going to say unsatisfied. So not unhappy necessarily, but just unsatisfied. When you're unsatisfied, it's really hard to get enthusiastic about something that you're kind of lukewarm about. Mm. And I discovered that doing this work with couples over the last 20 years, that when their libido is kind of, you know, plummeting down, sometimes there's a medical reason for it. But in, let's say, 95% of cases, it's because the sex they're having is just not that interesting anymore. And that is not a criticism of any one person but it is a contextual problem that as you know, we need to grapple with this as a society because so many people experience a dissatisfaction with their sex lives. There's no shame in it. There's nothing wrong with you, Mm. but we need to learn how to address it. And that's really what this book is about is how do we address uh, a pretty common problem Mm. through the lens of it actually being a quest rather than a a one-size-fits-all solution. I, lo- I really like the idea of it being a quest. There was one sentence I was reading that just made me think, oh, I'm totally stealing that. Um, a consensual collaboration between partners, I think I think you say in, uh, in uh-huh. one of the chapters. It's like, I really like that. And it's, so I think, well, I think there's a few things that I think it's useful to kind of talk about because, dear listener, you are expecting it that, you know, everything you have, you listen to on the show, it's inclusive, it's, holistic it's critical and this book is all of those things so um it's a very very inclusive book for all genders um i also think it kind of works for folk who are who have less interest in sex generally uh so i think mm, there's absolutely. a lot in here for asexual folk uh, or uh, anyone on the asexuality spectrum and when we hear the word libido as well it is like a kind of um it's often used in a very kind of uncritical way, but you really unpack it and it's really, you really critique it. And so it's mm-hmm. not, um, it's, it's, uh, it's an accessible book, uh, which is full of resources um, that takes the subject seriously, but it isn't one of those here are three steps to fix your libido. It's mm. more like this, this is how, this is what produces a libido. These are the, these are the, the, um, these are the conditions wherein libido sits. And also as part of it, you're also talking about um, uh, our our relationship to our body and trauma and disconnection and uh, the ways that we kind of, um, the mind-body split things. So it's really, mm-hmm. it's a really fascinating book. Uh, I'm encouraging you to rush out uh, and buy it. I'll put a link <laughs> in the show notes, dear listener. Um, so, you so tell us a bit about how a bit more about how you came to write it. So and and also about you, Cindy, for anyone who doesn't know who you are. So you uh you're a you're you do therapy, couples work, uh and, and so it came out of so the resources you came up with came out of that, right? That's right. So I mean it really started for me because um I actually am someone who struggles with low libido a lot of the time, mm. which I think a lot of people probably wouldn't think a sex therapist would have a low libido, but I, I often do. Mm. And increasingly, certainly as I've hit menopause, it's just been like, oh, my fucking God. Like, <laughs> who, I've had to sort of relearn who I am sexually all over again, which has been a challenge. Anyhow, um, but through my 
my 20s I think I spent mostly just sort of drinking and taking drugs and having loads of sex and just Mm -hmm. doing all of that my 30s everything started to slow down and I started having like proper relationships as opposed Mm -hmm. to flings and I noticed that in those um, sort of longer term relationships relationships that went on for more than a couple of months uh, my interest in sex really waned. And I was mm. like, what is this? This is a really strange phenomenon. And I went mm. to several different therapists and all of them took this very pathologizing approach to say, well, it must be because, you know, it's because of your childhood. It's because you've done sex work. It's because of this. It's because of that, all these things. And guess what? Turned out it was none of those things. Yeah. It was the fact that I was not resourced enough to work out what I wanted and how I wanted it, even though by comparison, I was much more sexually educated than a lot of my peers. I still didn't have these tools. So Mm. the quest really for me came about what do I need to learn in order to help myself? And then in the process then I can help other people with this. And sure enough, as I started discovering what happens when you cease to, and this is what I talk about in the book, that we tend to think of the mood and we tend to think of libido as synonymous with horniness, right? We all know what horniness is. It's a very specific sensation and it's great. It's fabulous. It's fun. And and if you are a horny person, all power to you. Awesome. But you are not necessarily the people (laughs) I am talking to. (laughs) The people I'm talking to are the people for whom horniness was perhaps once very accessible but has dipped away or that horniness appears but it tends to only appear under certain conditions and certain contexts and that is really true for a lot of people in longer term relationships across genders across orientations this is not more true for women than men this is not more true for straight people than queer people this is not more true for any subcategory this is a consistent thing there does seem to be a correlation with monogamy but not strictly it's a correlation not a causation Mm. that in long-term relationships as we start to drop our enthusiasm for newness and freshness and and inquiry our horniness can drop away Mm. and so because we've been told on repeat from a young age sex is natural when you're with the right person it's effortless you don't have to think about it you don't have to try goodness knows you don't even have to learn anything that if because we are tricked into being told that sex is natural that sort of uh creates this opportunity for deception to say well it's natural we don't need to teach it which is complete horse shit yeah and what we find is that if we're having lots of flings and hookups and one night stands, we might be able to sustain a degree of interest that way because there's a lot of newness and a lot of vitality. Mm. But for people for whom that kind of way of living is not appropriate, it's not applicable, it doesn't work for them for multiple reasons. Mm. Either they are long-term single and they're just like, meh, I'm not really interested in sex anymore, but I could be under the right circumstances, or somebody who has been with one or a couple of partners for a longer period of time, but it's just not exciting anymore. That horniness is no longer accessible. Mm. It can be very easy to think, well, then that's it, my sex life is over, rather than recognizing actually our interest in sex can come from so many things that horniness is just one and this is backed in research horniness is only one of 237 reasons that researchers have discovered motivates people 
to engage in sex, 237. Yeah. My hunch is that there's probably more, but the research currently tells us 237. So we'll run with that. That's certainly plenty. Yeah. And so if you are not a horny person, which I am not these days, but I can still find the motivation in other ways, in other contexts. And this book really helps people not only recognize that that is an option for them, but I actually teach you the questions you need to ask yourself through, you know, cognitive reflection, emotional reflection, somatic reflection. So that's paying attention to the sensations of the body, that through these multiple avenues, you can actually get a sense of what I call in the book your erotic template, meaning the it's like the user manual to you, how you work as an erotic being that is going to help you then when you can understand that, it's going to be so much easier to share that with another person so they don't feel like you don't fancy them anymore. You can still fancy them up the wazoo, but if your relationship to your own understanding of your sexuality is a little bit off, which for a lot of us that happens, mm. it can be very easy to mistake that for maybe I'm, I don't fancy my partner anymore. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's true, but in a mm. lot of cases it's not that you don't fancy them, it's that something has become uh, disconnected mm. and often that something is your capacity to pay attention to yourself. That's a really big piece in, in rediscovering the libido I've found. Yeah. Um, I really loved in the book how there are lots of case studies and in a lot of the case studies, you could see it was like a couple getting stuck. There was like mm. a real, there's a stuckness. And I think this part of the thing that kind of, and we, we talked about this. I've recorded a podcast for Cindy's podcast. Actually, what? Let's flag up your podcast when, uh, while whilst we've got the listeners' attention. What's it called? All right, again, it's called the podcast? Erotic Philosopher. Yeah, and uh, it's it's. I've just finished season four now. Yours was in season three, right. and um, yeah, I interview sex and relationship, you know, experts, thinkers from around the world about, you know, the heavier end of sex. That's the end I like to swim around in. So yeah. So if you like this podcast, dear listener, you'll like that one. Go check it out. Um, in our conversation about that, we were talking about sex education and, um, you know, that it's it's just so bad. And also, but, but there are also lots of kind of like common sense ideas about sex, like this idea of sex being natural, but also a common sense idea that if you're in a monogamous relationship, your libido after a year and a half will drop off. And mm -hmm. there might be studies that look into it, but what they seek to do is basically to reproduce the, a common sense idea because we haven't examined what we mean by sex, what we mean by intimacy, but also, um, and that comes out in the case stories, but also you can see that couples are kind of, the couples you're working with have backed themselves into a corner or and, mm. and, and, and that's, and you're kind of, your job to quote Wittgenstein is to show the fly out of the bottle, you know, to show them these, uh, <laughs> that's right. show them the different ways of looking. Um, right. And so even the idea of horniness and the, and the reasons why we have sex and the motivations behind it, and um, are, there are so many of them, and, and that can be a way around, can't it? It's a, it's a different yeah. way of kind of looking at it. Yeah, and that's, I think, because, again, our, our sex education has been so truncated into, um, you know, and, and I think we can probably thank Masters and Johnson for this, was this notion yeah. of, you know, the excitement phase followed by the plateau and then the orgasm and the resolution. We know now, 60-whatever years later, that that <clears throat> well-intentioned 
uh, mm. theory that they had back in the day. It was actually wildly inaccurate. Yeah. But we as a society have not moved on from that. We are still following this script of, you know, you've got to be horny first and then you start doing whatever snogging and carrying on and then you have intercourse and then somebody has an orgasm usually a man uh and then he falls asleep and we know how that rolls (laughs) so i mean but that's the story that's actually not how people experience sex if they are given permission to really engage with what they want and so sex can be anything from you know a really robust snogging session Mm. to taking a shower together to you know spooning together in bed what while watching reruns of Seinfeld and just sort of feeling the skin of your partner or or smelling your partner having your nose kind of buried in their neck can be very very sensual and and erotic without being explicitly sexual mm. and so when we understand that sex is so much is is instigated by so much more than horniness we allow ourselves a much, much, much bigger playing field to begin to explore not only what our bodies are capable of, Mm. because if we're condensing everything down to a square, it's, you know, 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres of genital skin, if that is the only skin Mm. we engage in a a partnered sex practice or even in a solo sex practice, frankly, Ten by ten, and that's just not a lot of flesh. And while it's it can be very intense feeling for some people, there is just so much more skin. There is so much more capacity for sensation that to truncate sex down to a small area of the body to then also truncate sex down to a small area of the mind means that we're really operating on a very very limited. Uh, set of beliefs and experiences and so for people for whom sex is kind of mediocre and they can take it or leave it before we decide that that's really actually how it's going to be for you and I also say in the book if you ultimately decide that sex is not something that you want to do I will be in your corner absolutely and say yeah "Yeah, you don't have to but this is for people who want to want sex again so at one time you perhaps wanted it and you Mm -hmm. now could take it or leave it and you want me to almost convince you to do it. I'm not going to convince you to do it, but I am going to say before you make a decision, think about this, this, and this, including if you gave yourself permission to think more broadly about sex than you have done for the last 20 years, is it possible that you might discover something about yourself that could really change the way you engage with sex and that perhaps that's something you could share with a partner who needs to know Mm. Because if they knew this about you, they may be in a better position to be able to offer you something that is going to be an incentive for you, especially when horniness is not an incentive. And also, you know, from research, we're also discovering, too, that that idea, the Masters and Johnson idea of, you know, horny first, fuck later is again not only wildly inaccurate how but it can also work in reverse what we're discovering for a lot of people is that if you start engaging in touch and activities that awaken the body that awaken the nervous system that literally get the blood flowing Mm -hmm. you're much more likely to start feeling horniness once your body has woken up to a state of excitement and a state of arousal rather than expecting you're going to feel horny with a cold engine 
And then, you know, then you start touching because you're in the mood because you're horny. Sometimes yeah. I think for, well, actually for a lot of people, it, it works in reverse. You have to start with the touching first. And that, that this is through a somatic lens, the nervous system that starts then sending signals up to the brain to go, mm-hmm. wake up, wake up, sexy yeah. time. And then you're like, oh yeah, look at that. I am horny now. Took right. 20 minutes, but I'm in, I'm good. Right. I'm ready to go. And the, and and you really explain that really nicely in the book about the that bidirectional um, relationship between between well the the body is the mind and the mind is the body but the but mm. the the messages that the brain is sending uh, and receiving um, from different parts of the body are a really vital part of it so it means that um, horniness or uh, libido or desire to have sex any of these things are produced by an assemblage of different factors that also mm-hmm. as i was saying i can't remember whether whether i said this on a podcast or in real life this is the dilemma of the podcast dear listener have i said this <laughs> did i record this uh, this th- idea i had the other day or not but you know but in a and you, this comes out from the case studies where as also as part of that assemblage whether the pots have been washed up after dinner is also part of of whether you're going to feel yes like you might want sex you I mean so yeah. that is also part of it right yeah absolutely and this is especially true because again like if there is any opportunity for your mind to be distracted and goodness knows a lot of us have very short attention spans mm-hmm. these days it's just the world we live in but if you are distracted by things like you know dirty dishes in the sink or um you know dust on the floor or uh parents uh, busting into your bedroom or your neighbors hearing you or just anything at all mm-hmm. that could set you up for distraction that is very reasonable mm. and also something to consider something that is work withable so for some people that might mean you do need to be more diligent about the times of the day you would uh, schedule sex and so even people who are like scheduling sex that's disgusting I mm. want it to be spontaneous and I'm like I understand that you want spontaneous sex however based on what you are telling me client mm. your body doesn't work like that right so you know if your body doesn't work like that it's like saying you know I'm presenting as a lion I wish I was an elephant but you know well you're not an elephant you're a lion so you're going to have to work within the bounds of what you have which is if you are particularly sensitive to noise or people walking in or any kind of what you imagine is a threat to your peace Mm. um, that's going to have to be worked with rather than against we don't Mm -hmm. override those kinds of signals but it means maybe then sex for you is going to occur on the weekend, maybe not in the middle of the week when other people are home or um, that you're in a place that's somehow soundproof that you can, you know, if you have to go and rent an Airbnb or a hotel room sometimes just so you can really let go, obviously financially that's not going to be a, you know, a lot of people can't do that a couple of times a week, but as a special treat once a month, maybe you can, you and a partner can go and, you know, get a nice place in the country where you can really let your hair down. These are the kinds of things Mm. that it's okay to prioritize and give yourself if you decide that sex is something that you want to invite back into your life again. The way we've been told 
that sex is effortless and with the right person you don't need to do anything special and just the mere sight of them is going to be enough that's complete horse shit yeah there are so many moving parts here including environment including social and emotional context including your state of mind have you had a shower do you feel clean or dirty or do you feel whatever do you have spinach in your teeth does your partner have spinach in their teeth do you uh, are you tired of doing sex lying down? Maybe yeah. you want to go to a beach somewhere and, you know, engage in, in the great outdoors. There are just so many things here. And, and this is where in the book I really encourage people to start taking, you know, an erotic inventory of the times that sex has been memorable, yeah. which is different than good, right? Mm-hmm times when sex has been memorable for them what made it memorable Mm. and it will be random things like i wasn't worried about you know sending emails to my boss i wasn't concerned about the neighbors hearing me i had booked a babysitter for the dog and i knew that i didn't have to walk the dog for 48 hours so i could pay all of my attention to what i'm doing these are the kinds of things that really can make sex memorable but they're not they're not the kind of things you buy in a sex shop no absolutely not (laughs) um the i mean i'll i'll provide i'll just to make this relatable dear listener and to make to so that you know i kind of like hold my, in inverted commas, expertise lightly. Uh, one of the things I find really tricky around sex, one of the things I get distracted about is being is sex education. <laughs> the amount of times where I'm like, I'm zoning out because I'm actually thinking about work and I'm in a completely different state of mind. And that can change. I have been known to get up mid-sex and write things on a post-it note and then, you know, <laughs> set things to one side. Apologies to my girlfriend for revealing that piece of information <laughs> but you know so little things like closing my laptop doing something in between because i work in the same room that i have sex so mm. i have to kind of so i find it useful to make sure that my laptop's put away that i do something in between work and any sexual activity that i might do and also i have to kind of pay attention to the vibe i you know putting some music on changing the lighting a couple of other private things that i might do as well and but which is so to to so your point isn't everything has to be perfect in place because obviously Mm-mm. that will also put That's pressure right. on us. Yeah. Um, but it's about that curiosity, isn't it? It's the what are the kinds of things that have been working in the past? And also it's about this thing that I think curiosity is a topic that I'd like to ask you about, which um mm. comes up in chapter seven when you're talking about um well, I'll let you introduce your model because it's your model. Um but I think that that ability to be curious at that moment without shame and to be like and to be able to clock oh this is a thing that's going on I don't have to force this but I also have to pay attention to it and also see what happens in my body as well mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so can you tell us about curiosity and how important that is and all of this and where that fits in Cindy yeah uh, perhaps tell us about your model yeah so I think the model you're referring to is the triangle of satisfaction right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is a model that I came up with that was based on what works for people. And the reason that that at the time for me was quite revolutionary was because, and this I think is sort of, you know, for me having come from a psychotherapy background, where traditional psychotherapy is very helpful is in, you know, we're looking at the source of 
of problems, the source of malaise, you know, that kind of thing. And, and that's what psychotherapy is for. Great. And how psychotherapy has accidentally, I think, commandeered sex therapy, I think in some ways they are not good bedfellows. And I wrote a paper specifically about why I think mental health counsellors and and psychotherapists are not necessarily going to be good sex therapists Mm. because in psychotherapy we are trained to look for the source of problems, but we're not necessarily trained to look for what brings pleasure. Even in the world of psychotherapy, pleasure is a dirty word for a lot of psychotherapists. Pleasure makes people feel uncomfortable, including medical professionals, including psychotherapists. So working in sex therapy where you're actually bringing forward information about a client's erotic history that has to be well it doesn't have to be but in my world it's pleasure focused rather than problem focused rather than when people come to a sex therapist and say I've lost my libido what's wrong with me why don't I want sex I would start to flip that question and say to them okay let's assume at a base level that there's nothing wrong with you I want to invite you to change the question from why don't I want sex to why do I want sex if you were to sit here and give me at least one maybe three reasons about why you want this to be different why tell me why you do want sex because you don't have to have sex with anybody remember but if you're going to sit here in my clinic and tell me that you want to have sex but you can't find the the oomph to do it Tell me why you want this to be different. And so with that shift in that one question from why don't I want sex to why do I want sex, we have an entire perspective shift and it invites clients to start thinking about sex not as a problem to be solved but a quest to be seized. And with that, I started asking couples who I knew both clients and, you know, my friends, who describe satisfaction with their sex lives. And that's not to say, you know, the best sex ever, Mm. but that their sex lives are, you know, good, they're satisfying Mm. as opposed to satisfactory, which sounds like a, you know, a grade on a report card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, satisfying sex life, which is a very subjective experience. And what I discovered was three things that these couples all had in common. They said that they were curious about sex they were curious about themselves and their partner's experience so that was one of the key elements all couples who described satisfying sex lives were curious about themselves and each other the second thing was that they were willing that they were able to make sex a priority meaning that they would schedule it they would put it on the calendar they would book you know holidays and airbnbs and whatever to make sure that there were environments where they had enough downtime to be able to have sex in a way that again was satisfying to them not some standard from other people but their own perception their own experience of what was satisfying Mm. and that they were willing to to engage with sex in such a way where it wasn't just this passive thing where they were not a passenger in this sex car being driven by some you know magical mysterious force they were actually creating and and co-creating a sex life with their partner or partners 
that was meaningful to them, that was satisfying to them. And when I shared this model of the triangle of satisfaction with my clients who were still very stuck in the what's wrong with me, why don't I want sex, as if the default setting is everybody wants to be horny, everybody wants to have sex 24-7, if we gave ourselves to the permission to realise that that's not true, that not, we are not horny beings 24-7, and that the absence of horniness is not necessarily a problem, but if you want to initiate some kind of erotic incentive, these are other ways that you can engage with your mind, your body, and your, your emotional state to see, well, when sex has been, like I said before, when sex has been memorable for me, what made it memorable? What made it good? And to start thinking about, you know, the physical surroundings. Where were you physically? What was your headspace like? Were you calm? Had you had a couple of drinks? Um, <clears throat> had you been on holidays for a week and you were sort of hanging out in Spain and just enjoying yourself? Uh, were you, was there something about the environment that was a bit naughty and a bit taboo and that that was exciting for you? Whatever it is, when you can recall, and I say this in the book, three times that you have engaged in sex and that, that was memorable for you. Generally, when people describe memorable erotic experiences, they're not necessarily remembering that they had the best orgasm ever mm. or that they did you know, 35 positions, or that it was even especially um, athletic. Mm -hmm. Often what people will describe as memorable sex is that they were able to access something within themselves that is hard or impossible to access when they're by themselves or when they are feeling in any way sort of shut down or inhibited, when they feel like they can have the full capacity to spread their wings, mm -hmm. that is often what makes sex memorable for them. But the context in which that happens for a lot of us is really few and far between. And so for us doing this therapeutic work, the inquiry is not what's wrong with you. Mm -hmm. The inquiry is when sex has been you know, memorable. Tell me what made it memorable. Let's dig into that because I don't believe that there is something wrong with a person who experiences so-called low libido. In fact, that's a phrase I have pretty much removed from my vocabulary these days. And I'll talk about high desire partners and lower desire partners as just as descriptors. Mm -hmm. But the diagnosis of low libido I think is bogus and I think it comes from a measuring against some, you know, imaginary scale of we're supposed to be having sex 2.7 times a week. Fuck that. Fuck that. Have sex as often or as infrequent as you like, as long as it's meaningful to you. So low libido, meh, talk to me about sex that's meaningful to you, and I will teach you how to get back there. That's so interesting. Um, I'm absolutely loving what you're saying. Um, in part because I've been boring my listeners about solution-focused therapy, solution-focused <laughs> practice. And it's this thing, the thing that you're saying there is so is re really chimes with everything that I've been learning and, and how I've been reflecting on my work and, and what I want to improve in my work is that we run the risk of when we talk about problems in that way of reifying the problem in, in ways which make it insurmountable yeah. and where we're paying more attention to our deficits and not our resources. Yeah, and so exactly. what you're doing here is you are resourcing or you are you're finding resources within your clients and you are resourcing them to do that yeah. Yeah. and um 
And yeah, we're too, I think, well, we'll perhaps get to this later. Let's, I'll save this for kind of like a spicy, we're going to have a spicy end, end point where we're going to talk about <laughs> discourse and resource. But, um, that sounds like a type of sushi. It's like a spicy end roll. <laughs> yeah. And, and nor am I doing the uh, Masters and Johnson sexual response uh, cycle either by, you know, having <laughs> orgasm at the end. But um, but in that as well with the the, that when you're describing just, you know, being able to access something within yourself and being able to spread your wings. I was really just thinking about what you were talking about with the body. And mm. I think also, well, perhaps we'll talk about this as well. I think let's talk, well, um, let's talk about the body um, and then we'll perhaps talk about the possibilities for the non-sexual body as well, because I think that there, that there is there are tremendous possibilities here. But um, the chapter after the uh, way you talk about uh, the triangle of satisfaction, uh, you talk about the body and you bring in some somatic um, breathing exercises. Now, mm. dear listener, you know that a uh, few episodes, well, quite a few episodes ago, had um, somatic sex educator, uh, no, somatic psychotherapist uh, Kim Lalia on uh, to do some breathing exercises. But you have some you have some takeaway activities for people to do around breathing, and I was just trying them out reading reading your book on my on my sofa earlier on um tell us what that kind of thing can do and what what paying bringing paying attention to the body and making use of the, of the body can do and why it is that we need to do it mm, mm. so <clears throat> i think where somatics and and sex education sex therapy whatever you want to call it why they are such fundamentally important parts of changing our relationship with sex is because um, when we are able to interpret the messages that our bodies are giving us, we are better able to tune into what might feel good moving forward. Mm. That at the most fundamental uh, level is why somatics and sex therapy, I think, need to go hand in hand with each other. Traditional models of, again, psychotherapy have been very cognitive very head-based and and very reasonable logical often um you know very rational which again for certain issues is helpful and is fine but i've never met a client who has come to me and said cindy i want to have really logical reasonable mm. measured sex mm. no one's ever said that to me usually when people describe sex that's memorable. They will use feeling-oriented words. They'll say, I felt so light. I felt so free. I felt so connected. I felt like I was touched by God. I, you know, whatever. They'll use language like this. And this is because they, if anything, they are free from the entanglements of their mind during this point. They are able to focus entirely on their physical sensation, or they're able to focus their attention on their partner's experience they are able to be what we call present much more embodied and connected in the moment meaning i'm not listening to the chatter in my head the chatter may or may not be there but i'm not paying attention to it my my attention is squarely on you or on me or on us or on one given thing and i'm really really in it and i'm not listening to the voice in my head that says am i too fat am i too smelly am i too soft are my boobs too saggy are my jiggly bits too jiggly 
uh, how much longer is this going to go on for? I wonder what he's thinking about. Oh, shit, I forgot to call mom. Like none of that stuff, which is a lot of the stuff that can take us out of the moment. That is the opposite of embodiment. And for folks listening who are thinking, oh, my goodness, that's me. I'm not critiquing you if this is your experience of yourself. For a lot of us, that is our experience of ourselves. But to start practicing these somatic exercises gives you an alternative to that sense of a runaway train in your head that you can actually bring your attention into the body about what you're noticing, what you're feeling. And, you know, if sex is feeling a bit kind of meh, you know, or, or a bit sort of nothing, you can also ask yourself, what might make this better for me? Am I cold? Do I need a drink of water? Uh, actually, I'd really love it if you kissed my neck right now. Could you just kiss my neck right now? Because that'll, I know that that generally gets me a bit more kind of connected mm-hmm. to my center. Whatever that is. And so breathing exercises are one way that you can, if you've got the runaway train going on, you can bring yourself back into your body, meaning your nervous system wakes up. And we do that simply by changing the way we breathe. For most of us, we breathe and we're not even thinking about it. It happens automatically. So this is the opposite of that intentional, deliberate, conscious breathing gives us a way to quieten the mind, streamline our thoughts and activate the nervous system in such a fashion that we can create both relaxation and arousal simultaneously. This is where it's different than meditation, which is also a series of breathing practices. Mm -hmm. Traditional meditation is about quietening the mind, soothing the nervous system and blocking out arousal. Mm This kind of practice is bringing your attention to your breath, activating the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the nervous system that Mm -hmm. governs relaxation, but simultaneously allowing the sympathetic nervous system, that's that's the nervous system that governs arousal, to wake up a little bit and come online. And this is why embodiment and sex is different than embodiment and meditation, embodiment and yoga, With sex, you need to wake up a little bit, and it's a delicate balancing act between the parasympathetic and the sympathetic because if you're too relaxed, then you'll just fall asleep. But if you're too awake, then you'll struggle with erections, you'll struggle with lubrication, you'll struggle with being present because there's just too much happening inside. You're too activated. So our practice is to balance these things out, and this is where the somatic element of sex therapy is so fundamentally important that I think sex therapists who stay away from the body, who stay solely in the realm of the mind and the cognition and taking that kind of bloodhound attitude of, you know, what's the problem, where's the problem, as if, you know, looking for the source of the problem in the individual rather than noticing the source of the problem is the fact that most of us actually just don't know how to manage ourselves sexually and so then we shut down. That's so interesting. Um I think, dear listener, I've talked about the parasympathetic nervous system and the sympathetic nervous system before, but the way you're describing it there is that, okay, just for me thinking about when I've had really great um, or memorable sexual experiences, mm-hmm. there's tremendous arousal, like real, like it's almost as if the sympathetic nervous system is kind of, you know, I'm breathing very heavily, my heart's racing, you know, tingling behind the ears mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, i've got a red face i'm just i'm just very very aroused 
but there, I'm also breathing in. I'm so also heavy in the bed. You know, I'm like taking these huge exhalations, and I'm like just going, ah, and it's like I'm kind of floating off the bed. And it's, That's like, right. it's yeah. and it's both, isn't it? It's yeah. It's the it's the arousal of the of the body being stressed in a good way. We mm-hmm. talk. I'll perhaps come back to trauma in a second, but being stressed in a good way and the parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system doing that work of just making sure you're not going to tip over into overwhelm and That's looking right. after the sympathetic nervous system, which means that both these parts of your autonomous nervous system are working very hard, but in partnership. Yes. And and so that means, and so it's, and so that's what, and so that's what the body is doing. And that sounds a bit kind of nerdy and scientific, um, <laughs> but th- that is, that is what is happening. Yeah. And, but how we get there uh, to, to that, to that, um, to that state of embodiment is, you know, there are a million different ways of going to that to that point absolutely yeah i mean dan- dancing is another way of getting getting right. into that you know? 100 and that's why i think why so many cultures across the world dance is synonymous with sex in so many cultures because it's a way of being able to access that state of um you know, arousal plus relaxation simultaneously. There aren't a lot of activities that humans do that are both uh, arousing and relaxing at the same time. Mm. Sex is one of them. Dancing is another one of them. You know, I think, whereas- I think some people talk about running as being being in that way. That there is a possibility of being a relaxed focus. You know, a kind mm-hmm. of a whilst whilst you're you're doing strenuous physical activity where you're feeling yeah. a particular kind of stress that. I think a lot of sports people talk about this as well. That feeling of mm-hmm. like being really in the zone. Uh, to to quote somebody from my favorite film, um, Twenty Four Hour Party People, uh, the producer <laughs> Martin Hannett says to the drummer of Joy Division, who would then go on to be drummer of New Order, "Faster but slower." <laughs> and it's like, and he's like, "What the fuck does that mean?" Uh, and I knew exactly what he meant. Because it's that, yeah, it's that right. kind That's of the, same the, thing. the relaxed focus. And it's like, yeah. um, and and it, and it's almost like, and the way that people talk about it is that it's kind of magical, but it's, mm. and but we've all experienced it. And I think if we can experience it in one part of our life, yeah. this is, I think this is where we can look at this as being like, uh, when we go beyond sex, if we can experience this in one part of our life, that means we can also experience it in another. If yeah. we can have that sense of, Feeling relaxed and stimulated and aroused yeah. in from dancing, then we, we there's there's nothing necessarily to stop us feeling that from sex either, apart from yeah. you know our sex education, our relationships. But it is yeah. possible to feel it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's the piece, you know, in the chapter that you're referring to, where I talk about the body, and I, yeah. I talk about this concept that I learned from Evan Thompson about the bird in the cage and mm. and you know that the practice of embodiment is mm. you know it, it's in our bodies absolutely but it's also in the environment in which our bodies live so when we are constantly living in a society that tells um <clears throat> you know that tells women they're not sexy if they're too fat mm. uh that tells men they're not going to get laid if they're not kind of hyper masculine mm-hmm. tells queer people that you know you can't wear certain clothes or you can't wear certain colors because it's wrong it's you know you're going to get bashed um 
the cumulative effect of that narrative is that sense of having our wings clipped that, you know, we still have wings and yes, we can still feel them, but we can't get a full extension with them because we live in a society that tells us, you know, don't you dare stick your wing out that cage door because something really bad might happen to you. And then this is where, the work of learning how to engage with our sexuality also does then become an act of maybe not rebellion, but it it really becomes something that we start to consciously, intentionally work with. And this is where sex becomes very political, even for people who are like, oh, I'm not political. I don't, you know, this doesn't affect me. Unfortunately, it does affect all of us mm-hmm. because we all live in a society that tells us we have to be careful of our relationship to our own bodies because we are so policed around gender, around language, around expression, around how much noise we make, around so many things. And I'm not advocating that people should be out having orgies in the street necessarily. That's not what I mean. But we have to look at it through the lens of the individual somatic experience, but also how that organism, how that body lives in a culture that says you have permission to act sexy, but you don't right? because you're a person in a wheelchair, but you young, thin 20 year old, you get to have all the accolades, but the person in the wheelchair does not horse shit, you know, but but we're still grappling with this. Oh, a hundred percent. I'm so glad you brought up politics there. And the kind of thing that you're talking about here as well is what Wilhelm Reich was talking about before, you know, Wilhelm Reich was the, the 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 psycho, as you mentioned in your book, but um, the one psychoanalyst in the in the well, one psychotherapist slash writer in the psychoanalytic tradi- psychoanalytic tradition who took pleasure seriously, and then there was a sweet spot in his career where he was saying a lot of really interesting, important things, and then kind yeah. of tailed off quite dramatically <laughs> <laughs> i should do an episode about rush at some point but, you should um, he's a fa- yeah. very fascinating a cool dude. guy yeah yeah um actually we talked about uh rush dear listener uh about the manosphere with uh jacob jacobson uh no jacob johansson sorry jacob um go back and listen to that episode but um i wrote down some of the words that you were saying earlier when you were talking about the possibilities of sex and, and when people are memorable uh, remembering the feelings of memorable sex. Uh, you were saying l- uh, light, free, um, free from entanglements, touched by God, you know, just deeply connected. If we take those words out of sex, light, free, connected, free from entanglements, touched by God, don't we all want that? Like, wouldn't, right. you know, this is why this is a political project, right? Yeah. <laughs> isn't it because that it that should be what the basis of our politics is mm. that this deeply connected you know we might want to add in you know connected solidaristically in community and with other humans but you know this is this is this should be part of politics and yes. uh politics shapes our possibilities for how for our sex lives as i've talked about in previous episodes dear listener but you know if we are having to work 60-hour weeks and our rent's uh, taking up half of our income and we're super stressed and our flats aren't great or if we are made disabled by society or uh, or society um, takes away, materially affects us in other ways, that affects how much we can experience pleasure. But the talking about the possibilities for pleasure is also a deeply radical and important act mm. um, that 
people don't really pay attention enough attention to at all. It just drives me nuts because yeah. it's like, who wouldn't want these things? Mm, mm. And I think, you know, somewhere along the lo- the way, pleasure became a dirty word in a lot of, you know, certainly Anglo cultures. Mm. Um, I, I don't know that that is going to change a whole lot in our lifetime, but certainly as we start engaging with some of the ideas of pleasure that it's no longer rooted in this, you know, absence of purity, but it is potentially just, you know, the the way that our our bodies are pleasure machines, if given full permission to access pleasure, it's remarkable actually what we're capable of. And I can't help but wonder how that would impact our society if people were less burdened with you know the economic hustle and the all the things that we all have to do mm. would there be less street crime would there be less i don't know war even my we've i don't think we've ever seen a society where pleasure has been centralized so it would yeah. be interesting to imagine that it, this is not even necessarily matriarchy versus patriarchy just a mm. whole other way of actually orienting society towards stuff that makes us feel good rather than stuff that makes us subordinate yeah i think it's really uh, it's a really interesting point about how yeah what if society was what if let's say what if society treated the the body as seriously as it treated the mind and wasn't just trying to extract resources from the body uh, and that it was about the possibilities of of pleasurable bodies yeah um Let's have one like kind of uh, spicy rant at the end here. Uh, so uh, I mentioned before, um, Cindy, that, you know, every time I open Instagram or um, a TikTok, I mean, I, I, I've got to delete, I've got to delete TikTok from my phone. I mean, they just come, they always take my videos down anyway. Whenever I open it, there are people there talking about sex, but they don't let me talk about sex on there anyway. Um, no, I have a very love-hate thing with TikTok. Yeah. I can't work it out. But we are bombarded with discourse. There's never, we are never, we we are. There's never been a point in human history where we're talking about sex as much as we are now. I think, you know, yeah. maybe Foucault might disagree with me, but uh, I see it like everywhere. Just, I know that's obviously because of who I follow and my job is and stuff. But it feels to me like we are saturated with discourse, messages, information, being told a set of stories about what sex is and mm. uh, the kinds of how we should relate to sexuality and what relationships are and stuff. But what what's your view on this? I mean, my, my take on this is probably that um, we've never been so bombarded with discourse yet because we don't have resource or the resource for resources and which involves a lot of care work and time and, you know, just mm. you know, self-care work that we, it's not leading to better sex. It's not leading to more pleasure. It's just leading to more anxiety and more yeah. kind of ideas of am I doing it right and am I enjoying it enough without ever being what, – what's your take on this? What do you reckon? Hmm. I agree. I think, you know, there there's a plethora of sex accounts on social media these days, um, you know, of varying levels of, of usefulness. But hmm. I think <clears> – <throat> I agree that we are there. People have more access to information de- these days than ever before, and I think 
you know, when you and I sort of started our careers, the, the, the issue then was people didn't have access to the information. Now they have so much information, they don't know what to do with it. And I think the issue has shifted now from can I get information to how do I integrate the information that I am finding? I think for some people, it has become a case of overload. There is so much stuff. Buy this lube, use this toy, have sex on a Tuesday, not on a Saturday. Um, you know, this position does that thing. Squirt like this, you know, have multiple orgasms. Don't have any orgasms. Withhold your ejaculation. Uh, you know, ejaculation makes a good facial moisturizer. But like, it's all this shit, right? Yeah. And, you know, whatever. Do whatever you want to do. But, again, if it if it if sex starts feeling overwhelming for you, it could be because the content you're consuming is either not landing properly. Give it a chance to land by actually working with the ideas of some of your favorite follow content makers, or step back a little bit and start asking yourself, you know, why do I want to have sex in the first place? What what is what am I hoping to get? out of my sex life? Why does sex matter to me? How do I want sex to make me feel? And then start using that as your North Star rather than this aspirational model of sex, whether it's holistic or completely commercialized, as far as I'm concerned, is irrelevant. If it is meaningful to you mm. and if it brings you something that resembles satisfaction, mm. then you're probably going to be on the right track. But filling up your life with, you know, learning how to squirt when it causes you pain to do so or worrying that you are not going to get a girlfriend if you have unreliable erections rather than thinking maybe I need to find a girlfriend who is down for doing stuff other than penis in vagina sex or penis in anus sex all the time. And there are loads of girls who are into that kind oh, of yeah. stuff too. Absolutely. So, <laughs> you know, so rather than trying to shove the square peg in the round hole, bring the inquiry back to yourself and say, you know, instead of trying to make myself be something else, how could I shift my perspective on this to say, I would be interested in finding a partner who, you know, fill in the blank rather than I have all these shortcomings. I'm defective. Nobody wants me. Yeah. That's the end of my sex life. Well, um, this book is the absolutely ideal resource to help you with that. Um, <laughs> it's really great. So we'll plug it again. So sex when I don't feel like it. Uh, this is going to be a link in my bio. Um, Cindy, anything else that you'd like to plug? Um, like can people, for example, access your your services? Uh, yeah, remotely? yeah. So I I work with clients all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, I do you know my counselling and coaching sort of through video for everybody. Um, I have online classes which are pre-recorded, so you can just purchase them you know mm -hmm. today if you want to. I also have um, an email service where uh, you can ask a very robust question, not just like a, you know, how do I blah, 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 but mm. something a bit more comprehensive. And I'll send you an email reply to that if you don't necessarily want to do long-term sort of investigative uh, counselling work. Um, and then I also, my sort of more elite service uh, is I spend uh, weekends with couples 
teaching them how to do a lot of the embodiment practices. Either they come here to New York or depending on their budget, I'll go to them and Mm -hmm. spend the weekend with you Friday night, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, teaching you how to uh, create memorable sex with your partner. So that is, um, and again, the emphasis is not on penis in vagina sex Mm -hmm. because you know, a monkey knows how to do that. Usually the couples that I work with, that's not, they're not struggling with how to do intercourse. They know how to do that. They're struggling with how do they make sex memorable. And that's where I think I really excel. So, And people can find details of this. Oh, yeah. Website? On my website. Yep. CindyDarnell.com. C-Y-N-D-I-D-A-R-N-E-L-L.com. And I'm on all the social media stuff, but my website is really the home of of where all these things are well cindy thank you for writing such a fantastic book such an amazing resource i'm going to be referring uh people to and oh, um and thanks for a very very interesting conversation and thanks for coming on the podcast oh you're welcome it's good to spend time with you you too okay bye there.